Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 177 with Mo Carrick. We're talking all about fit, what makes it happen, what makes it not, and what to do about it. So you're going to learn, one, the meaning and importance of work fit, two, the critical six elements that comprise work fit, and three, what to do when something does not fit in your workplace. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep177. And while you're there, I recommend you check out some of our cool resources. One I'd point you to today is just that little handy magnifying glass right there in the search navigation bar. What's cool about having all the episodes transcribed is that you can now search for whatever issue that's popping up at work you might have. So we've had 177 guests. So one of them may well have said something relevant to you. So drop by awesomeatyourjob.com. Hit that search magnifying glass in the navigation bar and see if we've got the right insights that you need. And if we don't, hey, email me, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. We'd love to have another interview that will hit the bullseye for what you need in your work experience. So here's Mo's story. Mo Carrick is principal and founder of Momentum, Inc., a certified B Corp and consulting firm dedicated to the vision of creating a world that works for everyone using business as a force for good. Her diverse client portfolio includes Prudential, REI, Nike, The Nature Conservancy, TechSoft 3D, HydroFlask, and others. A frequent blogger and contributor to Conscious Company, Success.com, and the WorkSmart blog, Mo is also a frequent and in-demand speaker and facilitator. She has shared her insights and energetic style at TEDx's and numerous universities, professional organizations, corporations, and trade groups. Here's Mo. Mo, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. In reading up about you, I was intrigued that you have something special regarding a relationship with potato chips. What's this backstory? <laughs> the backstory about my relationship with potato chips is that I think it's kind of one-sided. I adore them in all shapes and sizes, especially the new kinds of potato chips that are coming out of, you know, salt and pepper and salt and vinegar, freshly cooked, but they don't seem to feel the same way about me. And how do you know that they don't feel the same way about you? They never really connect with me. We don't have a relationship that's two-sided. They don't tell me what they love about me the way I do about them. <laughs> oh, now you got me thinking I'm hungry. But mostly we're here to not so much talk about potato <laughs> chips, but rather what's up when it comes to work fit. And you've done some great research and writing and teaching on this. And so I'd love to jump right in to, could you orient to us, first of all, you know, what do you mean by work fit and why is that important? What we're really talking about when we use the language work fit or work misfit is that feeling you get when you really love your job, when you're engaged and you feel like being there brings out your best, the best that you have to offer every day. And most of us know when we've found it. It's sort of like putting on that 
great fitting pair of jeans that you've had for many years that just go on easy and you love yourself when you're wearing them. Job fit, work fit, when it's really great, feels that way. And when it doesn't, it feels awful and we feel miserable. And in fact, 77% by one of Gallup's recent polls of people in the workforce today in North America and even more globally report feeling really disengaged and not really that happy at work. So it's a bit ephemeral and elusive this wonderful work fit that we talk about in the book. I hear you. Well, it's ephemeral and elusive, yet you've sort of clearly delineated six critical components or elements that make up work fit. Can you give us that overview? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, when I was young, and I think certainly probably for my parents' generation, what we often were looking at when we were looking for a job was two of the elements that we still have identified in our six elements, their job fit and financial fit. And job fit is really basically, am I skilled at doing this work? Do I have the experience or credential required for this particular job? And financial fit is, can I make the numbers work for me? Can I support the lifestyle that I want with the package of financial remuneration really that I'm getting? And it used to be, I think, that those were the two currencies that we looked for. What we discovered in our research is that the currencies of today are really dramatically different than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago, even 10 years ago. What people are looking for now, in addition to job and financial fit, are the four additional elements of fit that we've discovered. One is relationship fit which most of us are familiar with. It has to do with to what degree do I respect and value my boss and the colleagues that I work with every day. Culture fit, which has to do with how does this company do things here and does that work well for me? Meaning fit, which is a growing trend in the younger generations, people just entering the workforce or who have been in for five or six years are very motivated by doing work that matters in some way, whether it's for a particular mission or at least being able to connect their particular job to something important. And then lifestyle. How can I make this job work in the context of the lifestyle that I want is much more important now than it was. So those six elements, job, financial, relationship, culture, meaning and lifestyle really add up to what we see as sort of the key dimensions of having a workplace that fits well for you. Mo, I I get a real kick out of this because, you know, right now I've been considering some similar questions associated with, you know, what are the full set of drivers of job or career satisfaction and in a way that's sort of meaningful in terms of how they vary person by person and how they vary job by job, and thus you have the potential for fits and misfits. And I think that we're very much kind of arriving at some similar categories, you know, whether we split them into finer or more broad Mm -hmm. detail. And so could you maybe help me understand, I think I clearly picked up as I was reading your book, the definitions for each of these, but I'd love to clarify, first of all, when you said add up, do you happen to have any research or information or regressions or something that suggests which fit elements drive the largest proportion of satisfaction? I have a feeling you're going to tell me it varies person by person, but, but what did you discover in your research? Well, you're right, Pete. It does vary person by person. It also varies, though, based on your stage of life, which was a discovery we didn't expect necessarily to come through so clearly as it did in our research, which is that, you know, what motivates me in terms of work fit is very temporally relative. It depends on what it is I'm looking for at this stage in life. So for example, you know, myself as a young mother, I was looking for a different set of variables around work fit. 
I remember an early job I had that was in the corporate sector. Before I had my first child, it demanded really, really long hours of me. And once I had my first child, I really realized I couldn't work, you know, until 8 p.m. at night and drop him at daycare at six. It didn't really work for my lifestyle. That became much more of an important currency for me. And now, 30 years later, uh, my children mostly grown, I'm able to look at my work from a lifestyle perspective and consider different priorities in terms of those other elements. So for example, the meaning dimension is particularly important for me right now. And what we do know from some research, not our research, but research that's been done by other experts, is that the most commonly given reason for people leaving jobs is a poor relationship with their boss. And so that dimension of relationship fit continues to have a really huge amount of influence. For employees, as I'm sure you've seen in the work that you do, how I know the company is largely through the lens of my boss. That's my most direct contact. It's the person who I most likely interface with the most. And so for everyone, even across life stages, we've seen that relationship fit is a pretty high driver, although it's not always the highest driver, depending on what stage of life I'm in and what's mattering to me at that particular time. Okay. Thank you. And so now with the cultural fit and the relationship fit components, just want to make sure I understand them just right. I guess they were getting a little conflated in my brain because I thought, well, the culture is kind of based upon how individuals are doing things and thus treating me and thus it's kind of relationship. So maybe could you give us an example of kind of a situation or environment or a job story in which someone has just a great relationship fit, but a poor cultural fit or just the reverse. So I can kind of draw a clean distinction there. Absolutely. I think I might go with the reverse just because the story is popping out at me as we talk, which was a client that I worked with years ago who was referred to me by her boss who felt that this person who was on a leadership track, so she was moving, you know, from middle management, kind of moving more towards senior management, was in need of some development to be skilled at her job. And as I started working with her, what I discovered was that she really felt well fit with the culture. She liked the values that the company had. She was very connected to the brand of the product and services that they delivered. She loved the way they rolled in terms of their day-to-day processes. Things were pretty flexible. They were very dynamic. There was a lot that worked well for her in the cultural dimension in terms of what we kind of put under that category of how do we do things here as an organization. So the mission was clear. She liked her teammates. But as I began the assessment with her, based on the goals that her boss had set out, what became very clear very quickly was that her relationship with her boss was very poor. She didn't respect him. She looked around and saw other leaders in the organization who she was drawn to and whom she respected, some of whom had interviewed her when she first took this job. And then she had been assigned to work for this one gentleman who she ended up having a deteriorating relationship with from the very beginning. She found him to take credit for her work She felt he was volatile and not very predictable in terms of his behavior. And so as time went on in their partnership, she became more and more demoralized. And the essential tension that she felt was, gosh, I love this company. I love how they do things here. But for whatever reason, my boss and I are not connected. And that to me is 
not uncommon. Sometimes it happens in the reverse. I love my boss. I've had another gentleman's coming to mind who loved who he was working with on his team and in his boss. But the way the company rolled was inconsistent with his values, in particular, some integrity that he held. So it can really go either way. But it's very specific. Usually when there's a misfit, it's very specific to one aspect of that element. And so in the first example that I shared, it was this woman really feeling like the relationship with her boss was a a deal breaker for her. And um, I was able to support her in finding some new ways to partner with him. And over time, to her credit and his, they established a more trusting and strongly connected relationship. And she was able to work there for many more years in a satisfied way. Oh, great. Great to hear. And so then I'd also like to kind of get a little bit oriented to... The world of job fit, and I think that folks can sort of fall to some potentially dangerous extremes. And one extreme is like, well, I've got a job and they're paying me and it's fine. You know, just kind of like complacency, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the other extreme of, oh, you know, a job should meet every one of my needs and make me feel delighted each day. And I think that both are suboptimal levels of expectation for what a job or career calling vocation, you know, can be for you. So could you maybe help calibrate us a little bit in terms of a general feel for a fit that you'd rate as, oh, you could do better to, oh yeah, you're worth a great fit to know that you're actually expecting a bit much for what a job can do for a person. Yeah, I love that question because, you know, you're spot on, which is that we can't have all of our all of our human needs fulfilled by our job. It is just our job after all. And so having a healthy life in all the robust ways that that means, having healthy relationships outside of work, having a lifestyle that supports our overall mental and physical health, all of that really matters. And our job is definitely a piece of it. So I think kind of realistically containing your expectations about what a job can do for you is important. And we really do think about this as a calculation. And so one of the things we've done in the book that we've gotten a really positive response for, and someone could get this actually on our website, it's downloadable, is what we call the six elements checklist, which is a way to go through each of the six elements and answer which questions feel like they resonate for you right now. And they're questions that are stated in the positive, so that these would be things that you like and value about the job that you have. And if you have any one of those areas as you go through that score that has no items or maybe one items checked, that's an indicator to us that says, boy, you might really be in serious pain in this job. In other words, this problem, this category, this element is bad enough that it could be a showstopper for you. Now, the case by which it wouldn't be is that if there's another element where you really have all things are working and you're willing to overlook that. So that's kind of one way to think about it is, is there one particular element that's causing me quite a bit of pain or are most of them fairly satisfying to me? And then we sometimes see that if someone goes through the checklist, they may find that there's not any area that's causing them significant discomfort, in which case they're lucky and they're in a really good fit situation. So a lot depends on what am I willing to do with the trade-offs. And I'll give you an example. I had a someone I interviewed for the book who was at a career transition point. And what he was really interested in in his career, he got gotten to the point where he wanted to learn a new role. He wanted to be a sales manager. He wanted to travel and experience overseeing a big territory with lots of challenge and be at an executive level. And this was, you know, extremely important to him. Now, the job that he had, he wasn't in this job that he dreamed of. He was in a different job, which was sort of smaller in scope. It was a leadership level, but a little bit lower. 
And he had taken that job at the point at which he was also competitively training for some athletic events that he liked. And he was kind of very active in his community. He was raising his family. And that job really fit his lifestyle at that point. It also paid very well. And so he was able to have his financial needs met. And then over time, you began to see that as those needs became less intense, he was no longer training as a an amateur athlete, and he had raised his family, he was financially feeling stable, he began to see that, wow, this job is not is really not satisfying what I would put in kind of the category of ambition, which in his case is meaning. And so he began to look for an opportunity that would really allow him to get more satisfied in that arena, whereas for the past 15 years, it hadn't been a key motivator for him. So it's a lot about calculating the trade-offs and really deciding what matters to me right now and how important is it, how much am I suffering or how happy do I feel in that particular element? Is it worth a change right now or do I think I can live with it because these other things matter? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think that notion about stages of life and dynamics and evolutions really connects and resonates in terms of <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about myself, you know, I'm, <laughs> right. at this stage of the game, you know, recently married, I would not care to work the strategy consulting hours that I did mm. or the travels that I did. But when I was in the earlier part of my career, I thought it was so thrilling and awesome. It was like, bring it on. You know, what else right. do we got? I'm learning so much that I, I want to keep heaping it on. It's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you could do that at that time in your career, probably. And and it didn't cost you too much. But then there came a point, it's sort of like a tipping point, isn't it? Where you go, wait a minute, you know, this is no longer working for me right now. And that's sometimes a really strong indicator that says, okay, I need a different kind of fit. All right. Well, so I was going to ask you about how do we go about assessing our own needs? And it sounds like part of the answer is, hey, you got some free checklists available. So thank you for those. That's great. Any other kind of key questions or approaches that we should take when it comes to doing that introspection and taking stock of what really we need most in a job? Well, it's um, it always seems so easy to me, Pete. I don't know about you, but when I think about self-assessment, I often think, oh yeah, you know, I know myself, like I know who I am. And and what we have discovered in researching the book is that we're talking about a whole different level of self-assessment here. Um, you know, really being able and willing to look in the mirror and to ask yourself, you know, who am I? Who am I? And in particular, to look in the context of saying, who am I with the multiple layers of what I know I need in order to feel really satisfied in my life. And so a couple of areas that we suggest that other people have experienced as key in this self-awareness stage is, first of all, really learning how to know what are your strengths and what impact do you have on others. And sometimes that's related to your strengths and sometimes it's related to your weaknesses. But being able to bring that view of yourself that says, what am I really uniquely good at? When am I in my sweet spot? And how do other people respond when I'm doing that? What results do I get? And then in the process to really become willing and able to look at what's my Achilles heel? You know, where am I not so strong? A good example for me that I tell in one of my TED Talks is when I was in college, all I wanted was to be a writer. And I worked for the paper at my university and I was so excited I was going to work for a large newspaper someday. And what I realized over time, just even in my undergraduate years, was that I was a good writer. I could scoop a good story. My editor loved what I wrote, but the issue for me was deadlines. Like I just did not work well, sometimes under a deadline. 
it created a lot of stress for me because I was often rushing to get a story done at the last minute. And it, it didn't really, you know, feed me, but I had to look in the mirror and say, wait a second, like, I'm probably not the kind of person who's going to do well in a career that requires constant, unrelenting adherence to deadlines. You can't just call your editor and be like, I'm sorry, the story's going to be a day late. And I had to get real, you know, with myself to look at that. So that's one piece. I think understanding, we've already talked about a little bit, what's your life stage? You know, what do you need for income? What kind of adventure are you looking for? Do you yearn for stability? Do you want to travel? What are you motivated by? Some people, um, a lot of people entering the workforce right now, in particular, the millennial generation and the generation after that, they're very motivated by learning new things. So being able to notice that about yourself and focus on that will help you to assess fit even from the outside before you get a job that you're looking for. Similarly, I think that knowing what your flexibility needs are is important, especially in today's work environment where there are so many options. There's remote working, there's flexible hours, there's jobs that require travel, some that don't. Understanding more deeply, what is it that I need in terms of my freedom to set my own hours or my desire to have regular connection with people, that's an important part of your self-assessment. And then I think there's probably two more that come up that we mentioned in the book that we've seen time after time as we've interviewed people. One is to know like, what is it that I need to develop? How is it that I want to grow? And so that requires a little bit of saying, not only what do I think I need right now for my job, but where do I see myself in three years or maybe in 10 years? I was just talking to a client about this who's looking at a job change and she was getting very stuck in what's the next job. And I said to her, well, you know, you're 41. Let's roll this a little bit farther forward because if she could really get honest with herself about maybe what does she want in nine or 10 years, that starts to help shape well, what would be the next logical stepping stone from there. And then I think lastly, and sometimes this is where we start for some people, it works better that way. And for some people, it's something we can find hard to articulate. But what do we dream of? You know, our aspirations inspire us and they do motivate us. And sometimes we are scared to even name what we dream of in terms of work fit. And so giving ourselves permission to ideate, to imagine, to draw, to talk with other people about what we really dream. And it may be that we're not going to achieve our dream you know, right away or in this next job that we're seeking. But if we can get clear in our mind what that dream looks like for our lives and for the work we do, it makes it much easier to come back down to that pragmatic reality and create something that makes sense going forward. So those are a couple of things. But I'd say the overall caveat for me is being brutally honest and asking others to help us really know ourselves more clearly. Oh, thank you. That is a nice lineup there. And so now I'd like to shift gears a little bit in the realm of assessing things. You know, part of it is what do you need? And the other part of it is, well, what are the roles available in terms of either the current role or one you're assessing in terms of the extent to which it has the goods to meet those needs and serves to be a true fit. So I'd love to get your take when it comes to the researching and assessing of a given role. What are some of the best practices in terms of getting to insight quickly there? You mean like from the outside if you're looking for a job? Well, I think that let's do both sides, really. Mm. One, in terms of, okay, here now, this role. And then secondly, a potential outside opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a lot easier when you're in a role sometimes to assess fit 
certainly because you have experience with the company. And so you have some known things like the culture and what kinds of contracts the company is likely to negotiate and where there might be opportunity for a more scope of responsibility. So that can be really helpful if you are committed to and feel enough of a positive fit with your company to stay within and look for maybe another opportunity or another track. And as opposed to if you're looking for a job outside of your company and you're ready to make a change, it's really, it can be very difficult to assess that company. So let's go with the within the company scenario. I think sometimes it's helpful to get clear on the job fit question because many of us get sort of locked into a particular functional role when really our fit might be less tied to the functional role. I'll give you a good example. I had a client, it's not uncommon for us to have clients who are in an engineering profession who find themselves, for example, in a management role of other engineers and find themselves misfit because they may be trained for a job that was highly technical, very tactical. They could build and design things. And then as they move into management track, they have less of that hands-on work that they maybe loved, you know, when they were young. And for someone like that within a company, let's say they found themselves being promoted and they're feeling like, man, I don't love my job anymore because I'm managing all these people. I never get to actually do engineering. Within one company, they might be able to have a challenging conversation with their boss or with another functional leader to say, hey, you know, I'd love to get back to maybe a little more hands-on. I I appreciate the opportunities to lead, but I'm not sure management is, is my sweet spot. You know, what might be a a senior product specialist or a functional role that would allow me to get back to building and doing the things that I love. You know, that would be probably a series of conversations to help for maybe some lateral movement or maybe even movement into a different, you know, functional area from the outside. So, you know, inside you're going to be negotiating relationships and trying to figure out how can I make movement there while still staying. If I'm looking from the outside, what we recommend is to try to just really look at it as if you're in a detective exercise. You want to find everything you can out about that company before you sign on the dotted line to accept a job with them. And, you know, we all know that when you interview for a company, you just get the very tip of the iceberg of who they are. You know, everybody's on best behavior, including you. And, you know, you get a little bit of wine and dine, especially in today's economy where there are, you know, more jobs than there were certainly in the recession. And so it can be difficult to assess, like, how do they really do things here? And so we recommend, you know, using LinkedIn calling any friends or neighbors you have who might know that company or even suppliers and vendors and asking them, how do you find them? How do they roll? What do you like about working with them or for them? Of course, you can look at things like their great places to work survey data, but that doesn't always tell you a lot about how their culture is. So we encourage you to look for other signs. Try to get a visit there where maybe you spend half a day and you sit on some meetings. You interview some people from other functions just informationally. You read everything about them in the press and on social media. You talk to all your friends that you know that are affiliated with them. And that maybe will give you more complexity, more layers of the company as you're trying to assess, is that going to be you know, the best place for me? And of course, meanwhile, you're also asking yourself all the things like, how long is the commute? And do I think this financial package that they're offering would work for me? And if not, how might I renegotiate? So you're, you're looking at all the elements and seeing you know, what data do I have that tells me that this fit will be compelling enough for me to make a move. Oh, right. And so I like that particular part about you know talking to real people and getting that perspective. And so I'd like to get your perspective on 
Do you have any pro tips for getting strangers to talk to you? And I think one of the best sources of information along these lines are sort of former employees because like they're really free to speak <laughs> candidly. Yeah. It's like, hey, notice two years ago, thanks to you, LinkedIn, that uh, you yeah. just left this position. And I'm considering taking a role here. I'd love to ask you a few questions and then you can really get after some of those cultural pieces that you're sure not going to find on their website because every website says they're awesome. Yeah. And so you got to talk to a person. So I'd love your wisdom on how do you get them to say yes and agree to speak with you? Oh, it's such a great idea. And you're right on, you know, social media and LinkedIn in particular gives us fabulous access to people's histories. What I found works really well is complete transparency. I'm considering a move to this company and it's a significant change for me. And I'm really trying to make sure that it's a great fit between us before I sign on. I'd love to know some of what you loved about working there and also some of the things that were were harder for you so that you can calibrate. And of course, whatever they say, you're going to be screening it through the filter of where do I know I love to thrive versus what they need to thrive. So I had someone who did that, talked to someone that was in her network that had worked at this company. And this person started saying, well, that she didn't like it there at all because nobody kept regular work hours. Everything was very spontaneous. There were no offices. They shared desks. They call it hoteling. You know, you might've heard of this approach Mm -hmm. sometimes. And for this person that was doing the interview, she realized, oh man, that would be perfect for me. Like I love flexibility and I love hoteling and I would love that spontaneous kind of environment. She was coming from a much more hierarchical, structured company. And so although the person was telling her the reason she left, it was actually very attractive for her. So I think just being honest, saying, what are you up to? Why are you doing this research? And that you would really appreciate their candor. You can also sometimes offer, hey, this is confidential. This is just for my own learning. And I would really welcome your candor in what you might have to share. Oh, thank you. I really like that. Yes. It's like, what is it? One man's trash is another man's treasure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's right on. Yeah. And who knows? They might someday do the same for you where they're interested in a company that you have an association with. The other thing I would say, Pete, is it's definitely if you can find anybody that's been a customer or a supplier of that company, that's a super great experience or even... So go in and experience the company as a customer to get a feel for, you know, how do they do business? Do you think you like the brand itself and the way they roll in that way can be a great way to get some fluency? Oh, that's a nice lineup. Much appreciated. And so let's say we do discover that, hey, sure enough, this role I'm in right now really isn't the best of fits. I'd love to hear what are the ideal steps to take. I mean, I guess you can try to do something right there where you are. You could try to change something. You could try to supplement with extracurricular activities. You could jump ship. I mean, (laughs) how do you start thinking through all these implications? Uh, It's complex. And when we were writing the book, our first instinct with Cammie Dunaway, who's my co-author and I, our first instinct was kind of like our brains went to, well, you know, if someone finds that they're misfit, you know, they're going to want to leave. And what we discovered, and of course, this is validated by our own experience, is that oftentimes that's not the case, you know, either because it's not bad enough to leave or because maybe there's some piece of that role that's really compelling for me to stay. So we spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, well, what do I do that maybe is just short of leaving? And there were two things in particular that we found helped. The first was regaining our confidence. 
So what is the self-development work that I might need to do if for some reason I'm finding a piece of my job misfit so that I can get recentered on who I am and what I need to thrive in this current situation? And, and that's all about developing and growing our level of confidence to say, you know what? I am solid, I'm a good worker, and there are some things that aren't working here for me, but I'm going to work on that, and I'm not feeling so frustrated and spending a lot of energy being dissatisfied. And that can really help to focus how to make a slightly off-fit work. Mm -hmm. The other strategy we've recommended is the ability to flex to fit where you are. And you mentioned a couple of those ideas already, Pete, like, you know, can I expand my opportunities outside of work? Do I need to get some volunteer activities going? Is now a good time for me to go back to school where maybe I I put my heart and soul into something else that I love if I'm not being fed as deeply at work? Or maybe I think about how could I make this particular situation work well for me? I remember years ago, I had a job that required of me a lot of travel. It's common, as you know, in the consulting realm. And it started to feel like a burden. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to stick with it. And a friend of mine actually made a suggestion, which was, you know, Mo, why don't you think about like really enjoying the places you're traveling to instead of always feeling like just sad and frustrated that you were on airplanes and away from your family. And so I started this habit of making sure that I took a walk or a run in a city I went to and visited one cultural thing when I was there. And it really gave me a different appreciation for my job because I got to see some very, very cool places around the world that I never would have if I hadn't had this job. And sure, it was still not that fun sometimes to be on the road, but it kind of twisted my mindset in a positive way around that. So learning to figure out how can I flex my fit is super helpful. And there's a couple more components to that that I won't you know, bore you with now. A lot of it has to do with conversations that I may need to have or attitudes and values or beliefs that I may need to change within myself to feel a more positive fit there. And then ultimately, sometimes we decide we're going to leave. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. the place for me. And it's interesting when we were doing our interviews for the book, we interviewed a couple hundred people and everybody has a fit story and many people have a misfit story. And oftentimes the story starts with that moment when they decided to leave. And so if that's your situation, it makes sense to think about, okay, how can I leave gracefully? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I exit this job without having it be some big, horrible blowout? And at the same time, feel still somewhat secure so that the transition makes sense for me. And that has to do with, you know, planning some timing and thinking about that next opportunity while not burning bridges of the current one that I have. So um, we've seen it done really, really gracefully. And it tends to be much better to not burn bridges as you begin a transition for reasons of fit. Oh, certainly. Oh, Mo, this is so much good stuff. Can you share, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things? You know, I don't think so. I think, um, well, actually, maybe there's one thing and you touched on it when we first opened, which was this whole idea of, you know, is there a perfect fit? And I would say to your listeners out there, nope. All right. (laughs) You know, there isn't a perfect fit. There's jobs that we love and there's jobs that we don't love as much and there's jobs that we hate. And so I think what we're looking for in work fit is to get an awful lot of it right, knowing that there will be some days when it's just a little off. But what we really want is like the majority of our work time to be spent feeling like we're thriving and then really being resilient and tolerating those times when it's not because there isn't really a perfect fit. Just like, you know, there probably isn't a perfect 
marriage. <laughs> well, so now could you start us off and share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think one of my favorite quotes is one that we actually use in the book. And it's from, uh, believe it or not, Dolly Parton, who I'm not a huge fan of country music, but I did really like Dolly Parton. And she said, apparently, don't get so busy making a career that you forget to make a life. Mm-hmm. And I just love that quote because I feel as though we sometimes in modern society, we bifurcate our work from our lives and really they're intertwined and forever connected. So I love that lens of don't get so focused just on your career that you fail to make a life. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? You know, I love the work of Dr. Brene Brown, who's a qualitative researcher. I'm, she's a mentor of mine. I'm certified in her approach. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but her work's all about wholeheartedness and developing a courage practice. We reference her work often in the book because I think that it takes a lot of courage to navigate through finding a great fit at work. And there's vulnerability every time we're being called upon to be brave. I think Brene's research and the outputs for thinking have huge implications for all of us as, we, as we're in partnership with others and also with our workplace. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? Oh, you know, today you caught me on this day because I'm at the New York Times book show. And so I've just been looking at, you know, thousands of books out there. But I love fiction. It's one of my favorite genres to read. And I think one of my favorite books has to be Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. And I really enjoy that. I would also have to mention Daring Greatly, which is one of Dr. Brene Mm -hmm. Brown's books that I mentioned already. Oh, yes. And how about a favorite tool? You know... I saw that question in the pre-work and I was thinking, what is my favorite tool? And it's hard for me not to go to the tools that I use in my trade, but instead I decided to go with a tool that I use day to day. And that is, you're going to laugh when you hear this, but I have a tool that allows me to make apple butter. It's a a cooking tool that you grind the cooked apples and you can get the seeds and the skin and everything all culled out. And it makes just this delicious, smooth, creamy apple butter. And I only discovered it a year or two ago. And I've just been thrilled to, um, to use it. I don't even know what it's called. It's like apple grinder thing. <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know you're hungry. So I, I, really, I like apple butter and it didn't even occur to me to make my own. And uh, you're telling me all I need is this little grinder thing and Absolutely. some baked apples. And a crock pot. You can make apple butter in a crock pot. It's so easy. I'll send you the recipe. Oh, thank you. Or an instant pot. That is quickly becoming one of my favorite things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are cool. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? Gosh, I am a runner. I'm a lifetime runner and I have always loved it. These days, I also blend in walking because I've had some joint issues, but I think it's one of the personal habits that I value the most. And it is meditative for me. I've sort of discovered that, that it's a time when I when I'm walking or running, it really gives me time to think about things that I don't take time day to day in my busy work and home life to do. So um, I think that's a practice that I hope that I always keep up on because it gives me that time and space. Plus, it's good for my body, you know, keep my heart healthy. Excellent. And is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that seems to really resonate with folks in terms of their nodding heads and taking notes when you share it? I think that the work you know, whenever I talk to people about being honest and transparent about what's going on with them, about their fit at work, people usually really nod. They also say, oh, that's so hard to do. But most people know that 
when they're navigating WorkFit, there may be a difficult conversation or two in their future. And if they can just figure out how to have that, it will really help. So, you know, being brave and getting clear and being brave to speak what's true for you is one of the keys to finding, I think, that environment where you really thrive. That seems to connect strongly with most people. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The best place they could go would be fitmatters.biz, which is our site about the book. They can also check out my website at mocarrick.com, just like it sounds, M-O-E-C-A-R-R-I-C-K. And there's free tools and resources on both sites. And we also have some links for people to engage and let us know what some of their fit story is. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would suggest that your listeners spend 15 minutes in the next two or three days thinking about their level of self-awareness. To what degree do I know myself? And then maybe verify that with someone that they care about and say, let me tell you what I think my strengths and my opportunities are. How do you see me? Mm -hmm. That's such a valuable exercise. And it doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be fancy 360 feedback, but it can give you some great quick insight that says, yeah, you know, you do have a good sense of yourself or yeah, I noticed that, but there's this other thing you do sometimes that I think you could benefit from working on or growing into. So that would be my tip. Take a few minutes and think about you as you try to deepen your own self-awareness. Okay. Mo, this has been so enriching. Thank you for this and kudos to kind of putting this whole package together. And I wish you and your loved ones fantastic fits in the years to come. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I really dug Mo's perspective about how in an interview, it's just the tip of the iceberg. They're on their best behavior. You're not getting the full story. It takes some extra investigation to get at the heart of what really matters. And to not just hope that it works out okay, do that investigation, contact the people, get the full story because it matters just as much as the cash money dollar number matters. It's just way harder to know up front because it's not just listed in black and white in an offer letter. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we reference here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep177. I also hope you'll push subscribe so you don't miss folks like our next guest. It's Dodie Gomer. She is talking about how to lead without authority. So I hope to catch you then in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 